This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear me okay? Yep. My name's Stuart Kelly. I'm the literary editor of Scotland on Sunday, and it's an absolute delight to be here with the wonderful A.S. Byatt. Dame Antonia is one of the most eloquent and intelligent writers of her generation, from the Federica Quartet, which finished with A Whistling Woman, through to Possession, which is still one of the best-loved Booker Prize winners, and now the children's book. She's almost given us an alternative history of the past 150 years of change in Britain. Um, the children's book is an absolutely astonishing piece of work. It's a, a book which really interrogates ideas of naivety and innocence, of how we relate to children, and even what the books that we give children, how they influence them for good and for ill. She's actually never been to the Edinburgh International Book Festival before, so I'm sure you'll want to give her an extra loud round of applause. Before you do, well, Before we actually start, Nick, the new director, has asked me to say to you all that uh, the boards are becoming very slippery with the rain and the grass is becoming rather muddy and quagmire-ish. And so just take extra care when you all rush to get Antonia's book at the end of this event. Uh, we'll be signing in the signing tent afterwards. Antonia's going to begin by reading a bit from the book. Then we'll have a few questions between me and her. And then it's over to you. This is your festival, so be thinking about your questions. Antonia. Thank you. Um, do I need my glasses? Yes. Um, the lady who was prescribing me some new ones said she'd noticed me reading without them in her waiting room, and I can, in fact. But um, The passage I'm going to read from this novel um, comes from quite early on in the novel and takes place at a a large sort of summer garden party of a very English kind given by um, a family of whom the father is at this stage in the Bank of England and a leading member of the Fabian Society. And the mother writes increasingly successful books for children. Um, there are a large number of children in the novel, all of whom are equally balanced characters, I think, or more or less equally balanced for the reader to be interested in. And at this point um, in the story, the uh, elder generation thinks of asking the younger generation what it wants to do. Um, I think perhaps the only thing I need to say about the younger generation that won't come out necessarily is that the son of the banker wants to be a socialist. And the son of the anarchist, very impoverished painter in Dungeness thinks it would be rather good to be a banker. <laughs> so um, when they come up, you will know who they are. Um, as happens in such gatherings, where those whose lives are shaped, fortunately or unfortunately, are surrounded by those whose lives are almost entirely to come, the elders began asking the young what they meant to do with their lives and to project futures for them. They started naturally with the older boys. Prosper Kane said Julian had a fine eye for antiques and could tell the real thing from a fake. He had a collection of valuables he had found in flea markets, a medieval spoon, a very old Staffordshire slipware beaker. Julian said easily that after Cambridge, he might indeed like to work in museums or galleries. 
Serafita Flood said she hoped that Geraint would be like his father, an artist, and make lovely things. Geraint said she knew, really, he was no good at that kind of thing. He was good at maths. An astronomer, cried Violet. Geraint said he should like to make a comfortable living. He smiled amiably. Basil said he should go into business in that case. Like William Morris, said Arthur Dobbin, who hoped to introduce business practices into the artists' workshops in Lyd. Geraint went on smiling and eating jellied ham mould. Basil Wellwood said Geraint was welcome to join Charles in his family firm. Charles made a strangled noise, blushed, and was heard to mutter that that was yet to be decided. Etta Skinner said it was odd that nobody in this forward-looking community had asked any of the girls what they wanted to be. She hoped some of them had ambitions. Prosper Kane simultaneously asked Tom what he hoped to become. Tom had no idea. He told the truth. I don't ever want to leave here. I want to go on being in the woods, out on the downs, just being here. And to be boy eternal, said August, staining inevitably with a theatrical hum. Olive said Tom had all the time in the world. Leslie Skinner took up Etta's point. He addressed Dorothy almost pugnaciously. And you, young woman, what do you hope to be? I am going to be a doctor, said Dorothy. Violet said that that was the first that had been heard of that idea. It was indeed the first time it had formed in Dorothy's mind, and she had spoken spontaneously. Doctors and nurses was not a game they played. But she heard herself answer, and suddenly in her head there existed a grown-up Dorothy, a doctor, not sweetly benign, but wielding a scalpel. <laughs> Skinner said that was a fine ambition, though the way was hard still, and he hoped she would come to University College. But you must want to be married, Hedgehog, said Philip, using a nickname Dorothy disliked. Phyllis, sorry. I do. I want a lovely wedding and a house just like this with a rose garden, and I want to bake bread and wear lovely dresses and have seven children. Phyllis knew she was pretty. She was always being told she was. The young floods, Imogen and Pomona, could have been described as beautiful, but they were beautiful in a subdued and uncertain way, certainly unlikely to be stunners. Imogen had full breasts and wore no supporting underwear. She looked plump. She said she had from time to time thought of studying embroidery at the Royal College. Pomona said she might like that too, or she might like to stay and make tiles in Dungeness. Hedda said she wanted to be a witch. Violet <laughs> slapped her wrist. They turned to Florence Kane. Florence had had a governess who had borne in upon her that she had caused her mother's death when she was born and must devote her life to caring for her father. She had not mentioned these admonitions to her father, who was quite unaware of them and was also well looked after by housekeepers and sappers. He took quite as much delight in Florence's acuity as in Julian's. Florence did indeed look like his lost Julia, but he thought of the likeness in terms of a Van Eyck angel serene among its crimped hair. Well, he said, Florence, what will you do? I shall keep house for you, said Florence, who thought this was understood. I hope you won't. I hope you have a home of your own, and before that an education. I hope Julian will go to Cambridge, and I hope you will too. Newnham College offers a great deal. I hope you will want to go there. 
Florence was confused. They had never discussed this, and now firm statements were being made in the middle of a large party. She did not know anything about Newnham College. It was just a name. She doesn't want to be a maiden lady, said Julian, a blue stocking. This annoyed Florence, who said she didn't see why she shouldn't learn something Julian was going to. She would do so. She fell over her words and fell silent. She couldn't imagine what she might try to learn. That left Griselda. Basil and Caterina were clear about her future. She would be presented at court, become a debutante, and make an advantageous match. Caterina said she hoped Griselda would be as happily married as her parents. Griselda twisted a puce bow rhythmically round and round. Her mother tapped her fingers. Griselda had been shocked, deeply shocked, when Dorothy said she wanted to be a doctor. She had not thought of wanting anything beyond release from puce bows. She had an intense secret life, which consisted of reading novels about women reduced to silent attentiveness, full of inner rebellion, or of the effort of resignation. Jane Eyre, Elizabeth Bennet, Fanny Price, Maggie Tulliver. But all these had really wanted love and marriage. None had wanted anything so, so destructive as to be a doctor. Why had Dorothy never said it anything of this intention? She had had it in her pale head that she and Dorothy might live in the country together and never bother with stays and hatpins and buttonhooks. That was all she had thought of. And now suddenly Dorothy's world was black bags and blood and sick beds and grief and drama. And Griselda was nowhere. Dorothy had a secret. Griselda, her face white, said, I mean to study. Like Florence, I learn German and French. I mean to study languages. Katerina said Griselda had the best possible teachers and her progress was exemplary. Basil remarked to the surrounding bushes that women's education simply made them dissatisfied. He did not say with what. <laughs> Griselda twisted another bow and her mother tapped her hand. Humphrey Wellwood picked up Florian. What do you want to be, Florian? A fox said Florian with total certainty. A fox in a foxhole in a wood. Thank you. It's, it's an absolutely stunning book. And just when you were reading that part there, it reminded me how, how densely structured it is that Florian's beautiful throwaway remark about being a fox in a foxhole in a wood, in a sense, comes true in the book, uh, but in the most ghastly, ironic version. I mean, how difficult was it to sort of keep those layers of irony running through it? Very, very difficult. Um, I work in very large, very tightly written notebooks. And I think I did more planning of the structure of mm. this than of anything. And the fact, in fact, that Florian ends up in a fox in a foxhole in a wood in the First World War, I didn't think of when I wrote that sentence. I was still really? constructing. Um, what I did think of, my best <coughs> friend as a child, we used to ride ponies together, I had an uncle who, when asked what he wanted to be, said, <coughs> a horse. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I last sort of got that episode in. But then, you know, a novel consists of a long, long rhythm of words, and those words began to haunt 
the novel once they'd written and say it went that way rather than backwards. And it, it's a very, it is a very tightly constructed novel, but in terms of the attitude you take towards these forward-thinking Fabian people, it seems to be very precisely balanced between admiring their sincerity, admiring their beliefs, but being very aware of their limitations, their weaknesses, the way they fail to themselves. How did you manage that when sort of constructing it to get that balance between the sincerity of their idealistic beliefs and their own failure to live up to them? I think, um, in a way, the answer to that question is you know, a description of my whole attitude to life. I, I was brought up by Quakers and Fabians, indeed, both mm -hmm. my parents in their generation were Fabians. Um, I was brought up by people who meant to do good mm -hmm. and believed in continually trying to do good. Um, and I admired them. Um, I was a reader of novels and Shakespeare and naturally pessimistic as a human being, having been sent to boarding school. <laughs> and um, I knew that people always failed their high ideals. But I think it is very important about the Fabians, even if they have personal failings, to realize just how much they changed British yes. society. And, and there is a kind of, um, one of the tensions in the book is this tension between a period of immense political idealism and the rise of children's writing. And that's something that you've seen sort of cyclically occurring across the 20th century. Yes, it's, I don't understand it. I, I wrote the book not understanding it. Um, and I ended the book having read a great deal both of children's writing mm. and of um, political um, excitement. And I still didn't understand what does, as you say, seem to be a natural connection. Yeah, Peter Pan and the Fabians leading to Tolkien and the sort of uh, post-war communist almost up to the present day with the kind of a well, success indeed. of a certain Edinburgh writer. Indeed, indeed. And um, I, I said, do you know Jack Zipes? No. Jack Zipes is one of the great world experts on fairy stories. And at the beginning of the novel, I had the idea of E. Nesbitt, who was a founding member mm -hmm. of the Fabian Society, used to sit clicking her fan in Fabian meetings. And um, I couldn't understand quite how children's writing went with it. So I sent him an email saying, please suggest connections between children's writing and socialism. Mm -hmm. and Professor Zipes replied that fairy stories are the essential literary form of socialism because they're not historical. And it's they, utopian. It's utopian, it's hopeful. I think he himself is actually a utopian and hopeful being, um, and that's why he does it. But <laughs> I'm not. I, I regard them with grief and sadness. Um, it's, I mean, it is remarkable the way that you construct Olive Wellwood in these incredibly convincing pieces of ventriloquism for a children's literature that, that didn't actually exist. That process of ventriloquism, which obviously you did in possession as well, is it a sort of leaving of yourself or is it sort of constructing a version of yourself you'd prefer? I don't think it's anything to do with me. I think it's to do with my passion for the English language. Um, it's not personal, except I used to read fairy stories and these in a way I wrote the ones that didn't quite exist and should have done. This was certainly true with Possession. Yes, I wrote some absolutely. women's poems that don't exist, mm -hmm. that I <coughs> would like to have read that's to sit alongside Emily Dickinson and um, Christina Rossetti. And in here I wrote some slightly 
alarming children's stories. Yes, they're very alarming, I think. And I think they're slightly more alarming than most of the author's children's stories of the period. Mm. Not the unauthored ones, which are quite horrible. I mean, Grimm's brothers mm. are horrible, and you're not, at least I'm not, frightened. You know that they're designed to control the world rather than... Which is very different to Hans Christian Andersen and just how bleak those stories are. I don't think I ever got over reading The One-Legged Tin Soldier. No, I never got over reading The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And whenever I write about Anderson, which is frequently, I always end up describing him as that sadist. <laughs> um, he meant to hurt his readers. Yes. I don't think Olive did in the book. I think Olive meant to get the hurt in her life out. And, um, but it was her life, not mine. But with Olive, it's very much a sin of, well, a sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. That it's, it's what she's leaving out of understanding her children's lives rather than what she's actively imposing on them. She's also leaving out any account of her own life because she, there's a little bit of the novel where she grows up as a miner's daughter in Yorkshire yeah. and she loses both her beloved father who used to read stories to her and her beloved brother in quite horrible mining accidents. Mm. And she just puts a shutter over <coughs> that and goes south and writes fairy stories for children. Um, and she's determined to see her children as happy. But I'm not sure she ever looks at them apart from Tom too mm. closely. I, because, oh, this is a difficult thing to think. I think if you put shutters over part of your life, you put shutters over a very great deal. And she is a shuttered person while looking very open. The book deals <coughs> in, a, in an exceptionally intelligent way with this kind of paradox of the new woman, they describe themselves as forward-looking, um, and yet this kind of form of liberation also becomes a new opportunity for sexism. Um, the, the, the girls that are allowed to suddenly have a sexual identity find themselves being exploited, particularly by the ghastly Herbert Methley in the book, who is really just one of the most monstrous creations that you've done, I think. Um, do, you think do you think a bit of repression is good for the soul? Um. Yeah, it's also good for the life. I mean, it's, it's a good for actually making you construct a life which ha has a long perspective rather than a very short one, which is what total sexual freedom usually does to your life. I, I lived through the 50s where we attempted sexual freedom without very good mm -hmm. contraception. And I lived through the 60s where people attempted sexual freedom having got the pill, and in mm -hmm. both cases, as you have just said, women were exploited by the situation and also by their own feeling that they were free. And my generation of free women undergraduates, um, I think, was really distraught about whether it should mm. have a working life or a sexual and family life. Um, nowadays, people try to have everything, and looking at my own daughters, seem to manage to have everything, but at, at cost, it's, mm -hmm. it's not easy. Um, but in a way, understanding the 60s is quite helpful with understanding the 1890s, the 1900s. Yes, and you know, can we talk a little bit about the Herbert character? He's a, a novelist in the book, and you might have detected from the name Herbert that there's shades of two very great English yes, novelists. Kind of, it's one of the funniest parts of the book. I mean, the way that you sort of are. There's very few characters in this book that one thinks of as being absolutely unsympathetic, but Herbert Methley's one of them. Um, I could have written satire, 
my Quaker upbringing leads me morally to believe you shouldn't spend your life writing satire. But I really do dislike both <laughs> David Herbert Lawrence and H.G. Um, Wells as people. <laughs> I dislike Wells a lot more than I dislike Lawrence, um, because Lawrence came from the north and was out of my kind of world, so I see who it, where he's mm. coming from. But um, when I say I dislike them, I dislike them as sexual people, and I dislike what they preached. Um, and so in a sense, I'm sort of taking a real run at them and him. And I, I think he's about the most dishonest character mm, I've absolutely. ever invented in my life. <laughs> I thought, can I push him that bit further? And then I thought, why shouldn't I? <laughs> and um, I don't usually do that. My favorite <coughs> scene is where he's sitting naked with his wife sunbathing, which was what people did, yeah. in, a, in the garden. And I wanted him to be sitting among um, Brussels sprouts, because I saw these knobby Brussels and of course he couldn't have been, if you think about it, because Brussels sprouts don't grow when the sun's out, they grow in November. So I had to substitute peas and broad beans. And then I had this absolutely clear vision of this ludicrous man sitting there, consulting his watch on his naked wrist. And I put it into Google, and the wristwatch wasn't invented at the time he was sitting in this garden. So I, had to, I couldn't have that either. So the scene was better in one way before, before it got written. I, mean, it's, I don't know if people have been seeing the um, rather good BBC series of original recordings of some of these writers. But um, when I heard H.G. Wells, the fact he had such a tiny, squeaky little porcine voice, I mean, it seems so completely at odds with the the image he projects in his books. Yes, but how did he get all those women into bed with him? I mean... I simply have no he idea. He seems to have got anybody he... I cannot understand it. That's part of the construction of Herbert Methley. I mean, yeah. you think they would have seen through him from a mile away. Um, and poor Rebecca West, her life mm. was sort of totally ruined, ruined by this yes. dreadful person. And he did seduce um, Amber Reed in Newnham College, Cambridge. Uh, I never knew that. Oh, yes, he did. Because Amber Reeves, it was, not Reed. Um, part of the Fabian nursery, she was. And, um, and he went into, into Newnham. Well, of course, he was allowed because he was a famous novelist mm -hmm. who pronounced on this and that. And anyway, um, and she ended up with an illegitimate child. It's just astonishing. There's one line that I'd like to just read from towards the end of the book, when it gets into the Edwardian period. Um, Backwards and forwards both, the Edwardians knew they came after something. And that seems to sort of situate the book with its kind of eddies of contemporary relevance as well, that we feel we're a sort of post-generation, whether it's post-modern or post-war. How did you find the sort of parallels between that Edwardian period and, and what we're seeing now? Um, find is the word. I wasn't thinking of them when I started the novel. And when I started, the, I mean, the germ of the novel was very clearly, why do you have fairy stories in times of political mm. idealism? Um, and it was a period of history I'd always avoided because I'm interested in the tragic and the terrible. And it's, it seemed to me a, a sort of hopeful and slightly childish mm -hmm. period of history. Um, and so when I started doing the research and working out just how they looked at the Victorians mm -hmm. and just how they looked at the future. I was, I was amazed by the parallels. I didn't start the book in order to draw the parallels. I was amazed by how we had gone through mm -hmm. what they went through, and it caused me to like them much more. I yes, and I mean, towards the end of the book, you begin to get into the period where 
you have the rise of surrealism and the rise of psychotherapy simultaneously. Is that something that you're going to be continuing uh -huh, yes. in? I mean, it's <laughs> That's the bit I haven't done. You were saying I've done sort of a century. Yeah. There's a gap. I haven't written anything about the 1930s, 1940s. And the next novel was going to be about two lady psychoanalysts um, who studied under Freud and go right uh -huh. through into the Second World War. Then I thought, I'm going to die. I won't get it all done, so I better put the surrealists in as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in case I haven't got time to do both. So, but it um, seems such a striking and important parallel that both of them are beginning to do this cartography of the imaginary space. Yes, and both of them use these very delimited, precise little metaphors. You know, they cut mm. the metaphors off and stick them around like little jewels. And Freud says, this person has a fountain pen. If you think about the symbolism of the fountain pen, the fountain pen is a penis. So surrealists will paint you a picture of a fountain mm. pen as a penis. It doesn't, on the whole, it's very delimited in a very interesting way. Yes. And if you wrote a really good novel, you could use that technique and you'd be writing a different kind of prose. It wouldn't be mm. surrealist prose. But no, which tends to be sort of excessive and clotted yes, most of the time. I, and part of my problem at the moment with the research is I really don't like a lot of the surrealists. <laughs> I, I've come to dislike André Breton quite intensely. Is there, is there any one of them that you would sort of say, actually, that was a surrealist to read? Something like Blaise Sondrars or...? Um, I think the one I love is Max Ernst. I, I, I love mm. all his art. I love the painting. I love... And the women, I like Leonora Carrington and Eileen Agar, both of them sort of aristocratic ladies who threw the whole lot over in order to make works of art. And there was a rather good novel about Leonora Carrington a few years ago, wasn't there? I haven't read it, I think, because mm. I was already... In the research for it. ...thinking I might need to know about Leonora Carrington. And, um, I, think, I think I love Eileen Agar most of all. One thing about the, the book which... I think comes across very strongly is that you see writing as being in some ways a potentially dangerous act, as potentially an act of betrayal. And that must be quite difficult as a, as a very great novelist to have that suspicion at the core about what writing is and does and means. And it's something that we can see in, in other works of yours as well. Yes, I think that question comes so close to the sort of centre of me hmm. that I try to answer it truthfully because I was brought up to answer all questions truthfully. Which is strange uh, for a fiction maker. Which is strange. Well, that's part of the problem. Mm. You know, I was brought up by people who believe that truth is much more important than fiction. I, the Quakers were not very interested in art. Mm -hmm. And my father, although he wrote two novels, was a judge. And he believed that there was truth and you could tell it. And that you shouldn't distort mm -hmm. it. And and he was a good man and he was good company. And so I grew up with this sort of sense of values, which is quite heavy on you. And I, I don't think the contrast occurred to him, but it, I, however well you write about your friends or your family, you diminish them. That it, seems a very sort of profoundly ethical stance. It is a profoundly ethical stance, but it haunts me. Um, and you meet people in novels written with love by novelists. Mm -hmm. And the fictive character in your mind, in my mind, has replaced whatever the real character was once like. And this is a loss as well as a gain. And I deal with it by telling myself that what I'm interested in oh. is language. 
which is our interface with the world. We, and, and I love hearing it rattling around in my head and sort of singing onwards. And yes, I mean, does that link into what you were saying <clears throat> earlier before we came on stage about never having identified with a character in a book? I well, people keep asking me a lot more recently. Um, um, somebody sent me a sort of questionnaire from a newspaper. Which fictive character did you um, in, identify with in childhood? And the answer is I didn't. Um, I don't think I did. Um, and as a little girl, I, I lived in a fantasy world that consisted of one person and an enormous company of animals which were constantly traveling through a very dangerous forest. But mm -hmm. the one person was me, and it didn't meet any more. Well, it wasn't me. Um, it was everything I wasn't, but it, and very strong and powerful and could deal with difficulties. But it, it didn't meet other people. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I did. I mean, never, for instance, identified with Jane Eyre or Elizabeth Bennet, except at the moment when Jane Eyre is closed in the Red Room. Yes, that terrifying opening. A terrifying. Some of the persecutions of children in novels I have identified with the child. Um, but, I mean, for Oliver some Twist too. Henry James with um, what Maisie knew and The Turn of the Screw? No, in Henry James it's the language. I think, now how did he get that over in that sentence? Yeah. And then I think, you know, I, I recognise what he's saying about what the character is feeling. But the miracle is how precisely he... It's him, really. It's the writer mm. I identify with. I take it that means that you have a certain suspicion of memoir as a genre. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm a, a, I'm a sort of tarnished person because you can't write a novel like this without reading a, reading a large number of memoirs mm. and biographies. But I can't see myself writing one. And... I don't rush out to buy them unless I need them as material. Because, I mean, there has been a tendency in the contemporary memoir with people like Dave Eggers to be extremely upfront about the evasions of memory, the mistakes, mm. the, sometimes the downright lies that are being told in this memoir. But do you think that's just sort of compensating for a, an inherent flaw in the form? Um, I think I probably do think that. Though if, you, if I went away and thought about it for another half hour, I would say something slightly more <laughs> nuanced about it. Um, I rather admire Dave Eggers, but um, mm. I think basically I probably think that. Um, I once addressed a gathering of creative writing students in Houston, um, and they were all very young. And Frank Kermode had been there and said they were much more interested in literature than the literature students. Um, and I asked them, I said, how many of you are writing a memoir. Every single one put their hand up. I mean, nobody was. They can't have really done all that much by that stage. <laughs> well, what, what, what had they to write? Um, <laughs> they should have been looking out into the world. Yeah, yeah. But of course, the memoirs might have been looking out into the world. They might have been full of absolutely wonderful observation of insects mm. and things. Um, but it's not an age when you're unlikely to be obsessed with yourself. Mm. Um, so, I don't know. Um, my French publisher said to me in Lyon this summer, he said that readers no longer want anything but what he called reality, reality. But it's such a sort of fabricated reality. It's like the idea of reality television, which is the most unreal thing I can think of. I find that very frightening. I mean, 
I think there's something wicked about that, but I'm not sure quite why I think it's wicked. Mm. I, I think it exploits people, but then people go there to be exploited, and so that's their bad luck or good luck. Mm. And if they enjoy it, who, who am I to say it's I suppose horrible. it's the reduction of the, the reader to the voyeur, though, which is the more troubling no. aspect of it. But it's also the reduction of the human being to the constantly acting character. There was a wonderful series done in the 1970s when I was on the Social Effects of Television Advisory Group, which was set up by the BBC, called The Family. Oh. Did you see, and The Family had cameras. I think at the time I was reading the Mr. Men books, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think it's ever been redone, but it, The Family had cameras for weeks and weeks and weeks in their kitchen, their bedroom. Don't think there was one in the loo, um, but everywhere else. And apparently, they didn't know what to do when the cameras went away. Oh, how they didn't know who they were. They didn't know any longer how to live without projecting their living. And of course, now we have Facebook. Everybody is in that film, but not anybody as old as I am. Who? Just in, in terms of looking back over your career, um, obviously there have been uh, great advances in terms of the role of women writers. I mean, it, it'd be unthinkable nowadays for the Booker shortlist to be comprised completely of men. Um, but there seems to me a residual prejudice about things like, well, basically, women writing intellectual books. It's fine if they're writing cotton candy, you know, chiclet, but the minute a female writer really stresses their intellectual credentials, there's a slight kind of sneer in some of the literary pages about that. I think this is quite right, and I think it's very hard. Um, I mean, I would take it out of the chiclet. I think it's all right as long as you write emotional novels about people's feelings, mm -hmm. if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. But if you also try to think, somebody will bob up, several reviewers will bob up and tell you that you would do better not to. You know, it's like dog standing on its hind legs. It's, yeah. as Dr. Johnson said, it's yeah. better if they don't. And I think there are reviewers, both male and female, who would rather women didn't do that. Yes. And it kind of leads me on to your rather contentious comments about the Orange Prize and, you know, seeing it as a kind of ghetto is too strong a word, but it almost argues that these writers can't stand on their own against male competition. Well, the people who set it up did argue that. Um, I mean, my publishers begged me not to say anything, and <laughs> I, di I didn't sort of go out in the public, contrary to what what mm. people have said, but when asked a question, I give a straight answer. And it seems to me that the Orange Prize is a sexist prize. You could not found a prize for men writers. I think I've argued in some columns you could find a prize for, for really bad male writing. Yeah, yeah. You know, for the kind of really schlocky. <laughs> yes, but I mean, that in a way proves my point. Um, and it also, the Orange Prize assumes somehow that um, there is specifically feminine female subject matter. Sort of liquid to a feminine. Yes, which I, I don't believe in. Um, I th it's perfectly honourable to believe in it, I just don't. Um, there are very great women writers and women critics who do believe in it, mm. but, but I don't. Um, somebody tried to found a prize in London for black writers in London, and that was turned down because it was racist. Well, that was well, if a very that's racist, then the Orange Prize is sexist. Th that was a very peculiar incident because it was uh, the only case I know of where the um, Commission on Racial Equality and the BNP were both saying that this prize was racist. 
And it struck me, if these two bodies are in agreement, then something has gone very strange in our culture. Well, something has gone very strange in our culture. The culture doesn't feel like the opinions that people utter about it. Could you expand on that, is it? Um, well, I mean, if I'm reading black writers, I prefer to read the writing, not the blackness. Um. But is that part of the tendency in contemporary publishing to, to want to be able to pigeonhole, to yes. want to sort of stick a label on it and say this is And contemporary you know, bookselling, you, 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 yeah. you have a lip part of the shelf. You know, you're on gay and lesbian writers, or you're, mm -hmm. you're not on heterosexual writers, but you're on a shelf that's not gay and lesbian writers. Well, somebody said uh, at the festival this week, nobody ever has to come out as heterosexual. <laughs> There are contexts in which you do. <laughs> I think in the early days of the Virago Press, there was a certain number. <laughs> um, which is quite fun. I mean, that's all right. Um, your next book that's coming out, I believe, is with Canongate, where you've contributed to their myth series. Oh, yes, I... And you're looking at the myth of Ragnarok, the the Viking Norse myths. Can you tell us a bit about you know, what it is that draws you to those particular myths? Um, when I was a little girl in the war, my mother gave me a book called Asgard and the Gods, mm -hmm. which was a German book about Norse mythology, which I was reading when the Germans were sort of bombing us. And it said that all the gods knew that they were all going to get killed on this battlefield, and they all got killed on this battlefield. And I felt this was a profoundly satisfactory myth. It's, <laughs> it's the best myth there is. The gods get dead. Mm -hmm. um, and so when asked to write a myth, I thought I would do that one. Um, it's a very different kind of mythology from the Judeo-Christian mythology, the, the Norse gods. It's, it seems to be far more, far more pessimistic in some ways, but also full of those kind of strange heightened ironies. Odin having to give up his eye and then being told that the advice is keep both your eyes open. It's, <laughs> it's you know, very kind of cryptic. It's, it's very cryptic and I think it's even more cryptic because there isn't actually much remaining evidence of what it was, you know. No. And the, so the up, what we've got is kind of hints and, mm -hmm. um, and tiny little visions and then huge gaps and accounts that don't square with each other. Much more, I think, than with Greek mythology. Mm. Um, and the only character I liked as a child or like now was um, Loki the tempter, the wicked god. Oh, the who, trickster. The trickster who causes everything to come to pieces just because he likes seeing how it works and then <laughs> taking it to bits and burning it all up. Um, and in, in my version, and I did tell it as a myth, mm -hmm. but I ended up having to tell it through the eyes of somebody called the thin child, which was myself. Mm -hmm. You know, as a little girl walking through paradisal fields full of now extinct creatures to school um, and thinking about these rather sinister gods in this very bloodthirsty mythology. Um, where was I going? Um, in terms of, you know, having structured that as myth and the sort of Loki figure in that. Yes. Um, I, I, I felt that it needed to be written down as a myth, but I felt I needed a distance on it. And this child, in fact, adopted this as the myth that she didn't believe it, but it structured her brain. 
whereas when she went to church every Wednesday morning and the vicar told her that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, had died on the cross for her. Mm -hmm. She was a very rational child and she simply couldn't see the point of any of that from start to finish <laughs> and, and sort of stared and she felt terribly rude more than anything, not believing it. You know, she'd sit in church sort of saying, I can't see the point of that and I ought to see the point of that. And uh, whereas the Norse gods whirled around in her mind in a mixture of blood and smoke and ice and fire. And um, so that's what I wrote. I wonder if we could push that sort of Loki parallel a bit more, where you're saying you're fascinated about him as the one who, who sees how everything works and smashes it up. As a writer, you've always been both a novelist and a critic. And I was wondering whether there was a kind of a Loki aspect to being the critic, that on one hand, you're taking these books and finding out how they work and tearing them apart. And on the other hand, you're building them back together in your career as a novelist? Um, that's a problem that affects all undergraduates. You know, you begin to wonder what on earth you're doing this for. You're just taking things apart. You're taking mm -hmm. things apart. Um, and the nice thing about getting old is you, you realize that what you've taken apart comes together in your head in a much better form because you have taken it apart. You know, if you have once really read a Henry James novel, Mm -hmm. or really read Troilus and Cressida. Um, you've, I mean, increasingly I need to sort of pick it up and ruffle through it again before it comes back into my mind. But then suddenly there's this whole complex object which I've learnt because I analysed it. Um, I'm not a destructive critic. Um, I very, very, very rarely write a bad review. When somebody sends me a book I think is awful, I, I usually send it back. I don't, I say, I really think you should review something else. Mm -hmm. You know, use the space on a good book, I say, in an ethical way. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not something I'm over-encumbered with, I have to say. <laughs> you don't do that. No. Uh, two summers ago, I got sent a completely awful book and did send it back after thinking about it for two weeks. But... Um, we won't ask you the title. <laughs> no, no, you can't. But the reviewer who finally did it really couldn't bear it either and was embarrassed. Um, <laughs> Um, but I think, I think sort of destructive criticism is one thing. Analytic criticism is always slightly destructive. But if you can hear the words singing and work out which word in the singing is the mm -hmm. one that's really moving you, that's not destructive. That's, no. no. That's learning how to write. And just before we open it up to the audience, you mentioned speaking to creative writing students. and it, seems to me that there's a, a great virtue for people that are studying literature just to try their hands slightly at it. I mean, I remember as an undergraduate trying to write lines like Pope, so you realised just how incredibly good Pope was and that this wasn't something that you could just dash off. Yes, maybe, maybe that's where creative writing could become, you know, an important part of the, well, the academic literary world. Well, that's why I think it, it, ought to be, it ought to be the opposite of the memoir, unless you're writing a memoir they say write a memoir like Dave Eggers mm -hmm. and in invent your own places where you're telling lies and explain them, then that makes it into a formal exercise. I had a colleague at University College London called Basil Greenslade, who was a Renaissance scholar, mm -hmm. and he made all the first years write a Shakespearean sonnet. When they got there, he said, then you will realise just how difficult it is. Yeah. And, and also just how worthwhile it is if you can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there should be a lot more of that. I, I, think, I think that teaches you more about language than most things do. Can we have the house lights up? There will be a roving mic, so if you could wait till it 
actually turns up. Who'd like to kick off with the first question? Immediately over here. Thank you very much. I'm loving the children's book, not quite finished it yet, and I hope you have great success with it. But this is my one chance to say thank you for possession. It truly enriched my life. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. How do you feel about possession now? Is it all? I, I feel, um, you know, it's a bit of one of those things that has taken over the whole of your life, and you feel there are other things in your life. But, um, I mean, what I think about possession occasionally is a kind of wicked triumph, because editors <laughs> on both sides of the Atlantic tried to take the poetry out, and they tried to take great chunks of the Victorian prose out. And I wept and wept. I woke up every morning weeping. And um, my husband brought me up cups of coffee in bed because I was weeping because the publishers didn't like my book. And, um, and then... I th it got published, and it looked as though it was going to be a sort of success. And then when it ballooned off and everybody liked it so much, I mean, nobody could have been as surprised as I was. I, I thought it was a kind of niche book for academics, um, um, which simply proves you should always write a romance, really. <laughs> Can we have another question? Um, back in the middle there. Hello, I've always admired very much how you write about colour. Could you talk a little bit about how paintings influence your writing? I think, I think I'm almost synesthetic. When I'm writing, I see what I'm writing in coloured patterns. And if it's, if it's going to be any good three-dimensional coloured patterns in my head. And it's sort of subliminal colour in the sense that if you say, you know, what colour is the line connecting Frederica to Stephanie at that point, and the, what colour is the language out of Shakespeare that's crossing that, I will say, oh, the first line is green and the second line is red, and I'm seeing a kind of cube. Um, but I think why I like paintings so much is because they are timeless and absolutely non-verbal. You know, you can spend large chunks of your life trying to say why you like Matisse. And it's a slightly more dishonest kind of language than most, because actually all the things you like about Matisse are not puttable into words. Um, I only know that if certain lines in Matisse were moved two feet to the left, the painting would cease to hang together the way it does hang together. And I know that with the writing part of myself. And it's the same sort of hyper-excitement but it's completely different, and therefore paintings are a sort of way out of getting stuck in the middle of a long piece of string of thread of words, which is also cheering. Um, and I think also I care so much about colour because of the total absence of music in my life. I don't listen to music, I don't hear it. I'm not, I tell people I'm tone deaf, which isn't quite true. And there are pieces of music that move me, but. I can do without it, and if people play it at me when I'm trying to think, I, well, I could sit in an art gallery and think, you know, much better. Do you think that's had a, I mean, in terms of, obviously you've written a lot about um, the visual arts with your writing on Matisse and things, but that kind of l absence of music, is that because the language is the musical thing, that you're looking at the musicality of I think of any musical word? sense I've got has gone over into my sense of language. 
And I think, you know, you, you have about five or six moments in your life that are the ones you remember as formative. And the, one of my best moments in my life ever was when we were learning French at school. And I had assumed I would be very bad at speaking French because I couldn't sing a note in tune. Mm -hmm. And I discovered I had an ear for languages. I have, I've, I'm very good at speaking languages, although I can't sing and I can't keep time. And so I realized, that somehow released me into feeling all right, you can do language. You know, that is all right. And um, I've loved the French language ever since because, because I could do it. Can we take some more questions from the floor? There's somebody in the middle here. And then we'll come to. Are you ever tempted to write for children? And I'm thinking not just the, um, the experience of writing a, a, not a children's novel, but actually addressing uh, writing, imagining that the audience for your book would be children. Um, Has that ever tempted you? I once tried to write a fairy story for my granddaughter. Well, two fairy stories. Um, one of which finally, in an adult form, found its way into the children's book. And that particular granddaughter has just done her A-levels. So <laughs> the gestation period was very, very long. Um, I, that was the story about the giant who picked up the house with the children with the giant. Um, no, I don't, I can't do it somehow. The, um, just as I don't think I could ever teach creative writing. There are audiences I don't think I could connect with. I remember what it was like being me as a child. And I like talking to my grandchildren about the books they read. But I don't connect with any other children very much. And if you put me in front of a class of children, I would turn around and run <laughs> with fear, because that was what I felt as a child, and I still feel it. So for all those reasons, I can't do it. And, um, and the child I was only wanted to be a grown-up as quickly as possible. So <laughs> once I got to be one, I saw I had been right. <laughs> do you remember Martin Amos was asked the same question about would you ever write for children? And his uh, rather sardonic reply was only after a head injury. <laughs> 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 there was um, a question here first, then we'll come to you afterwards. Um, I've just been rereading the game, and I was thinking about what you said uh, about um, no matter how much you write about your, no matter how well you write about your family and friends, um, you diminish them. And there's sort of this interesting tension with the figure of Julia in the game, and then of course we have this, I think again to a certain extent in the in the children's book as well. And I was wondering if you could maybe say something about that. Um. When I, when I started writing the game, I had a friend whose mother was a, a novelist who wrote books very close to her own life about her relations. And my friend had a particularly unpleasant experience to which her mother responded by writing a novel about the very sensitive mother of a tiresome daughter who went and had a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> and I thought, this, you know, this really is wicked. Um, and I started writing the novel. Um, and it, I kept putting it down and coming back to it. But it really threw me when that happened to her about writing novels at all. And it made me very, very careful about never basing a character 
on only one person. You, 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 if you've got three, if you've got Lawrence mm. and and Wells and Wells, you've got a new person. Yep. If the person had been based on either, it wouldn't have been so interesting. And that is the way I try to get round it. There's a question just here. Besides your novels, you've also written short stories, even novellas. Do you know at the outset um, what length the uh, piece that you're going, you're undertaking, is going to become? Um, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I think yes. Um, a novel I wrote called The Biographer's Tale started out as a story, and my dear editor Jenny Uglow said that's a short novel. And so I turned it into a novel and it changed its form, and so it isn't inevitable. Um, I started writing short stories when a surgeon condemned me to death, as it were, and I walked out of his front door, he, um, thinking I had very little time left to live, and stomped into the London Library, and I thought I'd better learn to write something short and stop thinking I can only write things that are very, very long. And so I wrote a short story called On the Day That E.M. Forster Died, which it was. And, <laughs> um, and then I discovered I liked the form, and I started writing more and more short stories. Uh, and when I was young, I thought I would never have enough ideas, you know, to make short stories that, because I needed to keep them all for novels. And I put them in notebooks, and now it's the other way around. I've got far too many ideas and not enough life left, <laughs> yet again, yet again. So, um, so I, I like having both on the go. And at the moment, I'm writing this story, which I've been telling Stuart about, about a 12th century monk who finds himself in a very, very, very noisy flat in Tootingbeck in <laughs> 2010. Um, and I got to the middle, and then I had to write Ragnarok, and mm -hmm. the children's book came out. And he's still standing there. <laughs> he's been standing there for about a year now, and I'm just beginning to see how to get him out. But I think that's a novella, simply because I can't get him out any faster. Point just over here, and then we'll come to the person at the back. I'm a bit nervous about asking this question, but um, we were talking about labelling and and you know marketing, well, publishers' marketing books and sticking them on shelves. But what would you think about you being called a historical novelist? Well, um, I grew up on historical novels. We have been discussing, as is only proper, Sir Walter Scott who is certainly a very great novelist and certainly a very great historical novelist. Um, I have a sort of, or had a sort of passion for Georgette Hare, um, from whom I have learned a lot. But there is a genre of historical novels for which historical fiction prizes are awarded. And I don't think I write those. I, I think it's like detective stories. You can write a novel, Possession is a detective story but it shouldn't win a detective story prize or be put in for one. And I think the same is true of my novels. They're not genre historical novels, although I love a lot of the people who do write. Um, I love, for instance, Hilary Mantel's novel, which I think is nearer a genre novel than the children's book is. But, I mean, obviously transcends pure genre. Um, I like read it, but they have to be very good. I mean, it is an invented history you're creating. You know, no such figures all of well would exist. If you'd done the novel about 
uh, about James Barry, then that would have seemed more like a kind of conventional historical novel. Yes, it would. Or, um, I mean, there are periods, oddly, of history where you can create a fictive... I mean, the Renaissance seems to be mm. one of them, and Regency England seems to be another. And then there's a kind of medieval historical novel where you're eating a piece of meat in an uncomfortable fur around a fire, um, and you feel the kind of feelings, you know, that you would feel if you were in love with the undergraduate at the next desk. <laughs> it's... Uh, I mean, that would actually be quite an interesting novel to write. <laughs> Gentleman at the back there. I was intrigued by your mention of uh, Jack Sipes. As I was reading the children's book, I thought about um, people like Bruno Bettelheim and the uses of enchantment and, and Angela Cart and the Bloody Chamber. And I was thinking to myself, um, with both of those people and, and many others like Marina Warner and the increasing trend for books to be, going back to the question I just asked in terms of marketing, packaged differently, the same text, but for different audiences. To what extent do you subscribe to the view that all writing actually um, is, is nodding in both directions? Um, last Saturday, for example, I was here and we had a very interesting conversation with Sophia Janssen, the niece of Tove Janssen, on the, on the Moomin um, uh, books. And the overwhelming kind of, kind of message that came out of that discussion was that despite the fact that they were initially written, I guess, with a child audience in mind, the, the longest lasting effects seem to be on adult audiences. You mentioned Edith Nesbitt. Again, I can't think of anyone who gets through the railway children at whatever age without shedding a tear at some point. No, I think this is absolutely right. And I think there shouldn't be lines between genres and bookshelves and things. And one of the formative moments again in my own life was when Angela Carter suddenly had her moment of vision and realized that imaginary worlds had meant much more to her as a child than social realism of any kind. And she did, as I did, hated school stories about girls in dormitories. And, but she also sort of rejected realistic fiction to a large extent. And this was immensely liberating to her, and her saying it was immensely liberating to me, because suddenly I had access to those things which had really moved me when I was at the age of reading the railway children, and I could use them in my writing. And you know, I've always acknowledged this debt to Angela. Um, and Salman Rushdie was saying much the same thing at the same time. Um, and I think the one thing I can't stand people saying is it is the novelist's duty to describe the society he or she lives in. Indeed, which Christos Tolkas was saying at the beginning of uh, the book festival, that he felt that European fiction uh, wasn't really coming up to the mark in terms of describing the world as it is. Um. Um, it probably isn't. Um, but you don't have to describe the world as it is. Um, one novelist can't do everything. Mm. Um, and there is European fiction which is doing wonderful things. I mean, if you look, for instance, at Italian literature, they've almost never felt any compulsion at all to describe the world as it is. But they <laughs> do produce great writing about people as they are, or life as it mm -hmm. is. Um, it's a question of whether you're being accurate about the social world. And part of the problem being a British novelist is that we have such a strong tradition of having been accurate about the society we live in, about the structures of social organization and things like the class structure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and this tends to lead to indignation as your major emotion, whether you want it to or not, because of the imperfection of society. And this is gloomy. Mm -hmm. well, I prefer tragic to gloomy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid we're just about out of time. If you do have other questions, though, um, Antonia will be signing round in the signing tent, the London Review Book signing tent next door, and you'll have a chance to speak to her then. Do take care on those slippery things. We don't want anyone suing the book festival in this. 24th or 25th year of it, and I'm sure you're going to want to join me in thanking the absolutely wonderful A.S. Byatt. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.